All right, well, welcome to Passion Week. Uh, we are uh, in part two of our study as we journey through uh, the chronology of the last week of Jesus' life, kind of a journey to the cross with Jesus. Uh, today is uh, part two, so we're talking about Tuesday and Wednesday, and this is actually a re-recording of this week's of that week's study, just because whenever we did that a few weeks ago, uh, it didn't keep, uh, it didn't record. And so I'm um, just kind of recapping what happened on Tuesday and Wednesday. This will probably be a little bit more brief than normal. So on Tuesday, March 31st, uh, is probably what we're looking at here. And uh, Jesus is entering back into Jerusalem after spending the night in uh, Bethany. And as he goes along the road, he encounters the fig tree that he had previously cursed and which had withered from the roots up. And he explains one of the lessons of that tree. And so this is kind of the path that he would have taken. Um, he probably would have been starting here in Bethany somewhere, walking along the road to the Mount of Olives. And somewhere along this way on the Mount of Olives, there's a fig tree which he had, had cursed and it had withered. And this is really just a really short distance. Um, uh, not very far at all, maybe. Uh, you know, maybe a, a mile or, or two walk. It's not very, not very long. And so um, he would have been standing here on top of the Mount of Olives, just looking over uh, across the way to the Temple Mount. Obviously, the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock would not have been there. The Temple of Jerusalem would have been there uh, instead. So um, he would have been talking about uh, uh, the fig tree from the top of the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley. Um, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane right at the bottom of this hill um, is, is where that's at. And so this is kind of the view that, that we're, where Jesus would have been uh, teaching this lesson. And so the, the point is that anything can be accomplished through faith in God. And so as he's uh, walking on his way to Jerusalem, Mark 11 kind of picks up the, uh, the story. It says, early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Uh, then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Um, and so that's kind of the lesson that he wants to teach them is that um, you can do anything that uh, the Lord leads you to do. Now, we have to keep this in context. Um, that doesn't literally mean that you can do anything. Um, you can't just, uh, you know, go to bed at night, pray and say, God, I pray that you will give me a Ferrari. And the next morning, expect that there's a Ferrari in your front yard. Um, it's not what some of the what we call name it and claim it pastors uh, say that if you have enough faith, you can name anything and, and the Lord will give it to you. You know, I just claim the Lord's going to pay off my debt or I claim the Lord is going to heal me of this disease. You can't just name something and claim it and expect that it's always going to be true. Um, you have to ask with proper motives and believing that the Lord has really put this on your heart. James 4.3 says you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Um, so those things that come out of the carnal desires of our heart, we're not always going to receive. Um, we also have to pray according to the will of the Lord. Um, uh, you know, if we seek God's kingdom, He's going to put the things in our hearts that He wants us to have. Um, and uh, and so as we pray according to those things that God reveals to us and shows us, He's going to accomplish those things in our life. Um, that doesn't always mean that, uh, you know, everything you pray for, you're going to get, even if it's something good. 
um, praying for somebody to be healed of a disease, you know, that would be a great thing, but that's not always going to be the case uh, because God may have a different plan and will uh, in his perfect plan. Uh, the example I think of is King David. He prayed and prayed and prayed for his son not to die, but his son died. And he got up and he said, you know, God's will is God's will. And he believed in that and he moved on with life. And so he prayed according to what he desired until he knew what God's will was. And then he celebrated God's will. And so um, Jesus is just kind of teaching that if you have faith, if, if God declares something, which Jesus declared a curse on that fig tree, um, if God has declared something, you have faith in that, it will come about. And so as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, um, he begins uh, teaching and uh, confronting the religious leaders in the temple. So um, <clears throat> let me read some of this. This is kind of pick up that second part in Mark chapter 11. Um, verses 20 through 33. This is the second part of that. By the way, um, if you look down in the comments, you can uh, find links to some of these documents so that you can uh, follow along with us. You may want to just pause and, and click on those links and download the documents if you haven't done so already. So it says, They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, But what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd, because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, then Jesus begins telling a, a series of parables um, uh, to the religious leaders, which we will talk about here in a moment. So um, the religious leaders, as as Jesus enters into the temple complex, you know, yesterday, the day before, on Monday, he had cleansed the temple. He had taught against the legalism and the uh, oppression of the religious leaders. And so they are on fire. I mean, they are upset with him. You know, we talked about last uh, on Monday, he uh, actually on Sunday and Monday by entering and accepting the praise as a conquering, uh, as a uh, arriving political new king and accepting the praise of the people. Um, and by cleansing the temple, he had basically made himself a potential enemy of Rome and a definite enemy of the religious establishment. So he had already crossed a line by which there was no return. And so they are coming to him to try to test him and try to confront him and try to trick him today. And so today they are really on the offensive. And so they approach him and confront him about his actions the previous day, cleansing the temple and teaching against their leadership. And so this is kind of the, the uh, diagram of what the temple would have looked like um, in that time period. So uh, this uh, temple complex is huge, potentially about 24 football fields in size. Um, so uh, you can just imagine Jesus probably teaching out here. Um, th this is the main part of the temple where the only the men can go. This is called the Court of the Women. Um, right here kind of in front of the temple, but another separate area where the Jewish women could go. And this area outside is the court of the Gentiles. And so this is where people who are non-Jewish uh, followers of the Jewish faith um, were able to come into and, and worship. But that's as close as they could get. So most likely Jesus was out here in this outer area teaching um, about the kingdom of God and, and what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and teaching in an area where not only Jewish men and women could come, but also the Gentiles. And so there's a good chance that he was out in one of these outer areas. And you can just imagine the Pharisees 
huddle off in some area and they come into him and question him or confronting him or maybe even come and calling to him from the top of the one of these walls or something like that um you know and probably a you know a lot of them huddled in here in this area and then some of them coming out to confront jesus so this is kind of what the scene would have looked like but as they ask him these questions about his authority he sidesteps their question and asks his own question about the baptism of john and what he's doing basically is he's putting them in an awkward position because if they say, well, yeah, John was definitely a prophet of God, well, John was calling people to repentance and to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And he even pointed out that Jesus was the Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. And so he would basically be, if they said John was a prophet of God, then Jesus could say, well, then why don't you believe me? Because John prophesied about me. Um, and so, you know, and why didn't you go out to him? Why didn't you believe the words that he was saying? Why haven't you repented of your wrongdoings? And so they couldn't say that he was from God because they didn't follow what he said. But if they said that um, he was from man, you know, denying the validity of his prophetic message, then the people would get upset with them and, you know, who knows, maybe lynch them or something like that because um, the people believed that John was a prophet of God, sent from God. And so they couldn't say that he was from God because they didn't believe what he said, and they couldn't say that he was from man because the people did believe what he said. So Jesus really put them in a tough situation um, to where they were kind of in a, a place where they couldn't give a good answer. So they just say, well, we don't know, and trying to avoid the question. So Jesus says, well, if you're not going to answer my questions, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to answer your questions. So then Jesus begins a series of parables, which we're not going to read each one of them. Uh, the parable of the, the two sons, there's a, a, a rich landowner, and he tells one of his sons to go work in the vineyard. And he says, I don't, the son says, I don't want to. But then later he changes his mind and he goes and does the work. He tells his other son, uh, I want you to go work in the vineyard. He's like, yeah, dad, I'll do that. But then he doesn't. He disobeys and doesn't go out to work in the vineyard. And so the question is, which one uh, actually did the father's will? And the obvious answer is the first one because he eventually did go into the field. And so then he says, and this is picking up in Matthew chapter 21, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you, talking to the religious leaders. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. But when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. And so he's saying, look, the, uh, the parable of the two sons condemns the religious leaders for not believing John's message while sinners, you know, those who were outside the 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 people of God, so to speak, uh, like tax collectors and prostitutes, were did believe and were entering God's kingdom ahead of the religious leaders. So this parable was a direct condemnation of the religious leaders, and this would have just fueled their fire of hatred towards Jesus. He then goes on and tells another parable, the ter- parable of the tenants, and this is the one where the landowner has a vineyard. He puts a fence around it, puts a wine press in it, and puts a watchtower on it. And then he leases it to tenant farmers while he is gone. These tenant farmers uh, uh, are you know, taking care of the vineyard, and the landowner sends his servant to go and check on it. And whenever he sends them, the tenant farmers decide to kill the servant and try to keep the profit for themselves. And uh, this happens with another slave and another slave. And finally, uh, Jesus, I mean, sorry, uh, the landowner the, the, sends his son representing in this case Jesus, to check on it, thinking, well, they will respect my son. But the uh, tenant farmers uh, see the son coming. They say, well, we'll, let's kill him, and then we will have it all to ourselves. And so um, this parable of the tenants, the disobedient, thieving, murderous tenants, represent the religious leaders. 
they have disobeyed God and they've killed his messengers, the prophets. And now they are about to kill his final messenger, his son. And so God is going to uh, condemn them. He's going to disown them and, and kick them out of the uh, kick them out of the garden. Um, so these this this is another uh, direct uh, confrontation of the religious leaders, and they would have understood what Jesus was saying that they're being rejected uh, because they have disobeyed God and rejected His messengers. The parable of the wedding feast is another parable that God tells at this point, where a, a banquet is given. Those uh, in the establishment are invited, but they refuse to come, and so He um, the the one giving the banquet, the king uh, giving the banquet, invites all the riffraff uh, to the party. And everybody else who is supposed to be invited was le- is left out in the cold. And uh, this parable uh, represents, talks about the religious leaders. Uh, they're re- represented by those who reject the invitation to the wedding banquet. Uh, therefore, they're passed over. And all those who are seemingly unworthy are being welcomed in. Uh, that really being uh, referring to the Gentiles. And so basically, Jesus is saying, look... The Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, have rejected the message of the kingdom of God. And so God's going to just skip over you and invite others into the kingdom, that being the Gentiles. Uh, So this would have been a scandalous message. And so Jesus tells these series of parables. He's going to tell some other parables uh, a little later. Um, But in the middle of this, we have an episode when uh, some of the Pharisees and Herodians join together. They join forces to attempt to trick Jesus on a point of law. His answer will either cause them to lose favor with the crowds or to promote disobedience to Caesar. And so they come to him, Mark 12, 13-27, says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. So they're trying to butter him up. Hey, guy, we like you. You're, you know, you're an honest man. So let me have a question for you. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus discerning their thoughts, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought him a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told to them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so they were utterly amazed at him. Then the Sadducees come up to him uh, and began questioning him. So this first question comes from the Pharisees and the Herodians. And so they joined forces, which shows you that, man, they really hated Jesus. They were trying everything they could do to get rid of them because this is the religious leaders and the political leaders coming together. He was saying, even though we don't agree on matters of faith and stuff like that, uh, and in reality, we don't like each other. We like Jesus less. So we're going to come together and try to defeat Jesus and trick him um, into uh, getting himself in trouble. And so this alliance between the Pharisees and the Herodians makes it clear that Jesus is considered a threat by the existing power holders, both in the government and in the religious establishment. But Jesus avoids their trap by giving a both-and answer rather than an either-or answer, which is what they expected. So the Sadducees are the ones who come up next, and they say, uh, they come to him and give him this really elaborate story. Um, They say the Sadducees at Mark 12, Second part of this passage, uh, verse 13 through 27. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So now they make up this hypothetical. So there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and when he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, none of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. 
In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be, since the seven had married her? And so this is their elaborate story. And so Jesus responds and says, says, Jesus spoke to them, Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So Jesus really just kind of tries to correct their theology, and he knows from the get-go that um, these Sadducees are trying to trick him um, because at the very beginning of it, he knows that they're trying to trick him because Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. Um, you know, the Pharisees believe in resurrection, but the Sadducees don't. That's why they're sad, you see? All right, that's a bad pastor joke. But anyway, that's how you can remember that the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They were always sad. Uh, because what hope do we have if there's no resurrection? So Jesus already knows. These guys are asking me something. They don't believe in themselves. They're just trying to make a conundrum for me to get fallen into. And so the Sadducees attempt to trick Jesus by asking him this question. Uh, and it's really designed to make him look ridiculous uh, for having a belief in the afterlife. But Jesus catches them off guard and avoids the trap. And so he says, look, you're, you're talking about you know people who are dead being in heaven. Well, listen, God is not the God of the dead, but he's got the God of the living. And, and then he also says, and you know, whenever we get to heaven, we're going to be like the angels. The angels aren't given in marriage. Um, they don't marry, neither do they are they given in marriage. And so uh, in the, apparently in heaven, whatever it's going to look like, we're going to have some sort of different system where marriage isn't an issue. Another questioner comes up, sent by the Pharisees, and asks Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law. This question is supposed to trap Jesus into holding certain portions of God's law above others. Um, and we know we're pretty familiar with this. Um, the Pharisees uh, hear that he has silenced the Sadducees, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. One of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question, Teacher, which command is the great, in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And so Jesus avoids this trap by referring to something outside the usual canon of law and appealing rather to the core belief of Israel's faith found in Deuteronomy 6. And so this understanding of loving God with all your heart and loving others as yourself really incorporates and answers every question of the law. Because if you love God perfectly, which we know we can't, but just say that you could. If we love God perfectly with all of our heart, we will never transgress any of the laws that have to do with us and God. If we love others perfectly, uh, you know, loving, loving others with a perfect love, then we'll never transgress any of the laws that had to do with our relationships with other people. So loving God, the vertical relationship, if we do that with our whole heart, we'll keep the law. Loving others, the horizontal relationships, if we do that to the best of our abilities, we'll keep the law. And so Jesus avoids this trap by really going to the core of Israel's faith. And so at this point, Jesus begins putting the religious leaders in their place. He starts asking them some questions, kind of goes on the offensive um, he asked them how King David could describe the coming Messiah as his own Lord. He says, saying, how can he be both David's son and his Lord? If David's descendant was merely human, this would pose a serious theological problem. And so this is in Mark 12, 35-37. says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How can... 
then how then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with the light. The crowd was just eating this up. So basically, Jesus says, look, you guys, you scribes, say that the Messiah is the son of David. But David calls the Messiah, my Lord. So how can the Messiah be both the son of David, basically an offspring of David, but also be David's Lord? And so he's kind of putting them in a theological issue. How can how can the Messiah be a descendant of David, so being subservient to David, but then also be over David? And so... Um, Jesus is kind of, you know, asking them this question. And so he's kind of pointing out, listen, this son of man, or this son of David, Messiah, can't just be a human. He's going to have to be something more than human. He's going to have to have divinity behind him. He can't just be a good human who loves God and frees Israel or leads Israel to new uh, prominence. He actually has to be a divine being. And so Jesus points that out, and then he launches into this lengthy, scathing critique of the religious leaders, warns the crowds against following these hypocrites and these blind guides. And so at this point, this leaves all doubt behind about Jesus' intentions, and it is obvious only one of these two groups is going to come out victorious. And so he just goes into a lengthy uh, critique on them, uh, calling them out on a lot of different things. Um, and so, you know, this is just another, kind of another thing. No going back at this point after he puts them uh, in his place, okay? Um, and then uh, Jesus uh, kind of begins predicting the future. First of all, actually, he uh, he talks about the the widow who gives the two mites at the temple. Um, uh, so Jesus, remember remember that temple complex that they're looking at? And at some point, their place, there's a offering bin uh, where people can come by and give in their offerings. And the religious leaders would, would give large amounts, and they would drop in lots of coins so that you could hear it jingling and stuff like that. And, and in fact, we know that some religious leaders, especially the more prominent ones, would have a collar uh, out in front of them, a C-A-L-L-E-R, collar, somebody who is pronouncing, you know, here comes Rabbi so-and-so. He's coming in to give his offerings. Everybody watch. Everybody get out of the way. And so they would have somebody kind of announcing the greatness of who they are. And um, and so Jesus is watching this scene with his disciples. And um, he sees these guys putting in large amounts. And then this little widow comes in, probably uh, very inconspicuous. And you know nobody really notices her. And she drops in a couple of pennies. And he says, look at that woman. That woman has given more to the offering than... Um, than anyone else and so uh he uh he just really he, he points that out and the disciples are you know obviously uh curious about that um and so uh they uh jesus is, is basically doing this he's commenting and demonstrating what man considers great and what god considers great the religious elite were putting in large sums of money but their heart was not in it the widow gave all she had with all her heart and she was honored by god so right on the tail end of Jesus saying, you know, he had just given this big lengthy description of the Pharisees and how they were fleecing the people and how they were blind guides and how they were uh, bad leaders and not true followers of God. And before that, he had said the greatest commandment is to love the God, love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And so now he says, look, this woman has given all she has. So basically she has held nothing back. She's loving God with all she has. So in comparison to these religious leaders who give lots of money, but really do nothing with their heart. This woman has given all that she has. And so then Jesus begins kind of going on this this uh, uh, discussion of predicting the future. And, and it begins as he and his disciples are leaving the Mount of Olives, uh, sorry, leaving the temple complex and head, heading out to 
the Mount of Olives. And this takes place in Matthew 24 through 25. We're not going to read all of this. But it says at the beginning of that, As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, Do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Um, and then they want to know more about this. They want to know when's this going to happen? What's going to look like? How are we going to know that these things are coming about? And so as they are leaving out of the complex, Jesus begins teaching his disciples um, uh, about what's coming up in the future. He doesn't give them all the details, um, but he says there's going to come a day when not when all these buildings will be torn down. Um, and in response to their questions about the timing of these events, he differentiates between the destruction of the temple and the la- and then the last days before God's kingdom is fully established. So he, uh, uh, they want to know, hey, is this going to be kind of happening soon, or you know, is this something we're going to see soon? And so Jesus knows because he's God, he's omniscient. He knows that in AD seventy, the Romans are going to come in. They're going to completely destroy the temple because of a Jewish rebellious uprising. Um, and, uh, but that's not the end of time that Jesus is talking about. There's going to come a day when, when, uh, uh, the temple is destroyed, but there's also going to come a day when, uh, the son of man returns and when God's kingdom is established and when not Rome is overthrown, but sin is overthrown. And so, uh, Jesus kind of paints a picture here where he says, look, there's going to be certain events that happen now. Uh, you know, in uh, in the immediate lifetime of people that are around us. But there's also going to come a time when I return and when God's kingdom is established and all of sin is overthrown. And so that's, he kind of distinguishes between those two things. And then as they continue on towards Bethany, he begins tearing, telling some different parables. Uh, the parable of the fig tree encourages people to pay attention to the signs of the times and prepare yourself for future events. So as he tells his disciples, look, things are going to happen. Um, he says, look, be prepared. Uh, be prepared for the time when these things happen. It's the same message to us as well. The parable of the ten virgins uh, and the talents reiterates the importance of being prepared for those days and of being faithful until the end. Um, we as believers, you know, we haven't got to the end of this age yet. Jesus has not returned to set up God's kingdom yet on earth. And so we have to be prepared and be faithful until the very end. Faithfulness is rewarded. Think about that parable of the ten virgins and of those talents, the parable of the talents. Faithfulness to God is rewarded, but those who are unfaithful are left outside. And so those of us who are truly believers will be faithful to the end. The parable of the sheets and goats warns that not everybody will enter into God's kingdom. There is going to be a reckoning uh, based on those who have accepted Christ by faith, um, and those who have not will be left outside the kingdom. And so that gets us through Tuesday. Um, Luke 21, 37-38 tells us that uh, in the evening that they headed out towards Bethany. And so that gets us through uh, through Tuesday and then gets us all the way up to Wednesday, April the 1st, um, which not a lot happens on uh, Wednesday, April the 1st, at least in the, in the descriptions that we have. Jesus returns to the temple and continues teaching. Um, but Wednesday is relatively quiet uh, compared to the three previous days. Uh, but really, we know it's just the uh, simply the calm before the storm. Uh, on Monday, the uh, the Pharisees attempted to trick Jesus and you know ask him questions and tried to uh, uh, you know trip, trick him up and stuff like that. But they had already determined, man, we cannot. It doesn't matter how we question him. Doesn't matter what we say. We can't catch him and so they had basically given up on that and now they're re- reconvening and thinking of a new problem so the sanhedrin 
on Wednesday begins formal plans to uh, try to kill Jesus. So let me just read the events of, of Wednesday. Sorry, I think I said Tuesday. Let me read to you the events of Wednesday. Luke 22, 1-2 says, The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Matthew 26, 3-5, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be rioting among the people. And in Luke 22, 3-6, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver, so he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. And so at this point on Wednesday, man, the, the plot to betray Jesus and to arrest Jesus and kill him really begins picking up steam. They're done trying to trick him. They're done trying to trap him. He is he thwarts every chance that they make or every attempt they make to trap him in some sort of legal uh, issue. And so they're done with that. They're saying, you know what? We're going a different direction. We're going to arrest him. We're going to kill him. We just got to get rid of him. And so they begin making formal plans to kill Jesus. Uh, they meet in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel. Uh, Caiaphas's house is believed to be right about here. Uh, right now there's a church there and you can go uh, to there and you can see the church and then underneath the church is rooms and really there's a there's a, a jail down there with uh, kind of places of torture um, underneath this building. Um, it's pretty interesting that you can see here the, the house of Caiaphas is right here. House of the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper is right here. And so whenever Judas betrays Jesus, he could very easily just go right next door and do that betrayal. And so uh, this is where Caiaphas and, and the Sanhedrin would have probably been gathered to make this determination to kill Jesus while Jesus was probably here during the day uh, teaching in the temple. And then later on, he'll go out to Bethany for the night. Um, so the Sanhedrin's plan is to wait until after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, ending April 9th, so that the crowds would have gone home. However, a more opportune time will arise for that event, as we know. So their plan, because they didn't, they had all these crowds that were here in Jerusalem, um, their plan was for to, to wait until all the crowds had gone home. After the Passover had already been settled, uh, unleavened bread, and all that, that whole feast time period had already passed and gone, and all these multitudes who loved Jesus and who were just enthralled by him had gone home. Uh, then they would arrest, arrest Jesus and have him executed. And so that's their plan, but we know that God had different plans. And so all along this this process, this path, we've seen that the Sanhedrin and the Romans, they're not in charge. Uh, God is in control. And Jesus is setting things in motion to where a confrontation has to happen. And God is in charge of what the events that are taking place. And so um, we know that nothing happens without God's allowing it to happen. And so at this point here on Wednesday, God allows Satan to enter Judas. He goes to the Sanhedrin. He uh, betrays Jesus. Um, to them and begins looking for an opportunity to hand him over. And so the Sanhedrin at this point may have still thought, well, after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we'll do something. But they don't. They may not have even been aware that Jesus was going to come to them just the next day and betray Jesus. So um, this is setting in motion uh, for Jesus to be betrayed and to be handed over to the Pharisees in order to be executed. And so one thing that we can keep in mind is that um, Jesus was in charge of this. And I think that's really the truth that kind of comes out in some of this chronology. 
Jesus was making these things happen. Jesus was the one who was confronting the religious establishment, confronting the false teaching, and presenting truth to the world that he was engaging with, those people he was engaging with. And because he was presenting truth to the world, he was despised and rejected and ultimately crucified. And so we can we can see from that that Jesus really sent himself to the cross. You know, just like whenever he said, nobody takes my life, but I give it willingly. He put himself on the cross for our sake. It's not something that was taken from him. It's something that was offered for us. And that's something we need to remember. What a testimony to the love that God has for his people, that he willingly went to the cross on our behalf. In fact, he orchestrated things in such a way that he had to go to the cross. Um, uh, there was no way around it. The Pharisees had to do something. And so Jesus made this all come about. Um, it's also a, a reminder to us that, that God is faithful to us and that even though we are called to be people of truth and people who speak truth with love to the world around us, um, God is going to be faithful in the midst of that. People are not going to accept truth willingly. Um, people are going to reject us. Uh, they're going to reject the message that we have. But our responsibility is to speak the truth with love. And so uh, that's the model that Jesus gave us. And that's the thing that we need to continue doing. Well, that is Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, we uh, talked about Thursday last week, and so you can find that uh, video on here as well. Um, and then this Wednesday, we will be talking about Friday, the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And so hopefully that'll be something you can join us back for again. Thanks for joining us.